Welcome to Season 4 of American Political History, 1676. War. As the war continued, the first moves were to consolidate power on each side in accordance with their military's advantages. Bacon controlled the inland counties while Barclay controlled the waterways and the counties that were easily protected by those waterways. In the lower Norfolk, Colonel Mason was asked by Barclay to support Admiral Morris. Colonel Mason faced the quandary that so many had in this Virginian Civil War. Which side was his best place to put his allegiance in? The people of the lower Norfolk also had grievances about Barclay's spending on forts, corruption of burgesses, and sales of weapons to natives. But they had strong connections with London merchants and had little interest in Bacon's independence movement. Colonel Mason decided to lead and provided 40 militiamen to serve in Morris's landing force. Morris now took charge over the waterways surrounding Virginia. Ships known to be loyalists were allowed to continue their trade, while any boat not known to be loyal were impounded. If anything was found which could aid the Baconites, then all on board were captured, put into forced labor camps, and or sold as indentured servants and sent to the Caribbean. As the war continued on, this pressure of consolidation would ensure that there was no space for neutrality from this conflict for any bystander. If you hadn't signaled your loyalty with Barclay, then you risked confiscation of ships, land, supplies, and personage. If you lived in the Virginia inland areas and you hadn't taken the oath to Bacon, all of your property was surely to be plundered for the cause. As the two sides consolidated their power, a large military showdown was inevitable to resolve this conflict. Mason and Morris started a campaign of amphibious attacks, trying to hold strategic forts and towns, but Morris would quickly voice his frustration with loyalist militia. As I said before, most militiamen were indentured into service or mercenaries for plunder rights. Why would they put themselves in these hard, grinding battles? Morris eventually learned to use this common militia for taking strategic points, and then use his few loyal, trained militia units for holding those strategic points. History is not composed of movie-like scripts. It often takes its own turns out of nowhere. General Nathaniel Bacon died that fall, likely to typhus fever. Although the rebels would continue to fight on the battlefield, the loss of their political leader fatally slowed the momentum of the revolution. And more specifically, it stopped the broadening of it into other colonial revolutions. It would become limited from this point on to Bacon's Virginian Rebellion, with no chances of growing into something larger on the American continent. But war's momentum continues until one or both parties have exhausted themselves of life and fighting bodies. Admiral Morris's naval campaign started to retake territory, starting with the least defended counties, the Lower Norfolk and Surrey negotiated peace terms. Naseman County, which was reconquered militarily, was the first county to face counter-revolution. Colonel Joseph Bridger had returned from exile from Maryland. He had only left because Bacon had labeled him a traitor to the revolution. He now saw in his home county that all the loyalist plantations had been plundered, including his own. He took his militia and ruthlessly plundered, arrested, and executed those that he felt had been a part of the revolution. 
Fighting continued through the winter as the Loyalist forces moved away from their strength on the waters. They struggled further to take any territory back. These battles of militia were small as wars go in our mind. The largest may have been two to three hundred in total. Most were well under a hundred men. As battles raged, bitterness increased. Losing not only meant losing a war, it often meant recapture, indentureship, or execution. The offer of peace negotiations had only went to those first few colonies and the first few officers who had chosen negotiations. Now, as the war was turning in favor of the loyalists, as happens in so many wars, the soon-to-be victors were not in any mood for peace or negotiations. They sought revenge for this war and the forces that they were fighting. Admiral Morris tried to stop the spiral by offering reasonable peace terms to those willing to come back again under the authority of their rightful colonial leaders. He gave his own justification for the rebels' actions, saying, They exercised the authority they just acquired to gather their neighbors together for mutual protection during the war of each against all, the war against native attacks. Should overspread Virginia in winter of 1676, these garrisons were best dispersed by pardoning the commanders. Governor Barclay would override Admiral Morris's terms of peace for Baconite officers, choosing instead, even though they had surrendered under those terms, execution of those prisoners instead. But before the bloody counter-revolution could fully be wrought upon all of Virginia, events would take a very different turn. A harbinger of a changing world would arrive late to Virginia. Although the people at the time saw this arrival as simply hope for stability, peace, justice, and normalcy, the Americas had radically changed, and Virginia would permanently change from this moment forward. The American colonies had been semi-autonomous governments with institutional independence, residents of a colony looking inward at their own politics. Now, the once distant crown would be imposing its will upon Virginia and the American colonies. There would no longer be autonomous, independently run governments. There would be subjects to the crown within the English colonial order. Governments would be overseen by imperial commissioners. That harbinger was the arrival of the Bristol and a squadron of -of man-of-war ships. With them came support vessels with full staffs to run the affairs of government in the colony and the military forces vastly outscaled anything in the Virginia War that had just happened. In the War of 1676, where the Rebecca under 14 guns was the vastly superior vessel in all of the waterways of Virginia, now each of the seven warships had up to 100 cannons with professional firing rhythm. Now, where the largest battle of the war might have been 300 militia accounting for the forces of both sides, Crown authorities would land 1,000 professional redcoat soldiers to oversee order in Virginia. Leading the Crown's expedition was Admiral Sir John Barry. His first move was to thank the sea captains that had saved the Crown's colonies, even when Barclay had not paid them for their efforts, saying, What signal service? were done as to the suppressing this river rebellion must be just the lead to the incessant toll, courage, and good successes of those few sea captains, Morris, Consent, Grantham, Pine, and Gardner, 
who is due commendation the more because the county have been ungrateful to them in not mentioning them in their successes. The king would later give the captains 10 years of tax exemptions when unloading cargo ships in London as a reward for their service to crown and country. Sir John Barry would now address the commands of his mission to end rebellion and the causes of it. He was unconvinced of the ability of Barclay and his Burgesses to govern the colony effectively in any way. Sir John Barry's first move was to take command of the militia, replacing all of the militiamen with his own soldiers. As most of the militiamen were forced into service, they appreciated being allowed to return to their farms. Sir John Barry then presented Barclay with orders directly signed by the king. Barclay was to hand over all naval authority to Sir Barry and all legislative authority to Sir Geoffrey, who would administer the colony going forward. Barclay was bewildered by both the sudden subordination of his position and the overall implication of his censure of his rulership of Jamestown. Barclay agreed, while on a ship full of English officers, but then went about reconvening his old loyalist assembly at Green Springs, where Barclay would lead them in legislating a veto to all demands of the Crown Commission on Virginia. The response from Sir Geoffrey to this rebellious legislation was swift, commenting that those that call themselves the Loyal Party are the one chief disruptors of the peace and settlement of this calamitous country. Sir Geoffrey used his regular troops to put down any disturbances to his commands. He then purged all loyalists from all levels of government appointment within Virginia, including shipping once Governor Barclay back to England immediately, where he could explain to the Crown's court why he violated the Crown's written orders presented to them and instructed the work of the Crown's commissioners. The 1676 revolution and war had been a struggle over the governance of Virginia, but the war had brought the attention of the Crown, which had no interest in either side's bickering or victory terms. The Crown's interest was a restoration of economic stability and imperial income. From the continued shipment of colonial staple goods, a colony was to produce and ship goods to the metropole within the empire. Any local or provincial politics were only but a nuisance to the objectives of the Crown. Sir Geoffrey saw that peace would only happen with reconciliation so he asked for all counties to bring him their grievances so that it could be addressed by the crown authorities. Six of the eleven countries complained about the tobacco tax and that its revenue was unaccounted for and assumed to have been misused. They complained about the taxes for forts whose levies had been misused by the Burgess's personal spending. They also objected to Barclay's policy of Indian alliances and his slow response to Indian violence against Englishmen. They wanted any Virginian assembly, colonial-wide or county-wide, to meet less often so that it could tax the people less often, and that all Virginian assemblies be restricted by English common law. This was because they wanted, as English common law gave them, protections against the extraction of property by government appointees without due process of law. They also objected to the structure of land taxes, which aided larger plantation owners by forcing troubled smaller farmers to sell off their land. And lastly, they demanded an end to the laws suppressing them from owning firearms. Barclay had outlawed the frontier from owning firearms in hope of stopping this conflict.
Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.